This is Florida Matters. I'm Robin Sussingham. We know Florida is home to over 500 kinds of invasive species. They aren't always scary pythons, though. Sometimes they're cute monkeys or parakeets, but they can do harm to Florida's native flora and fauna, and lots of time and money is spent fighting them. How are we doing in this battle? We have with us today two people in the trenches in this fight against invasive species in Florida. John Humphrey is a wildlife biologist with the USDA National Wildlife Research Center's Florida Field Station in Gainesville. And Todd Campbell is an associate professor of biology at the University of Tampa. Thank you both for being here. Thank you for having us. Thank you. So, John... When animals are nuisances or they cause property damage, your organization is the one that looks into it? What Wildlife Services' mission is is to mitigate wildlife damage issues, whether that be uh, wildlife and people, wildlife and agriculture, or wildlife and wildlife in the case of, uh, say, predators taking endangered species, eggs, or, or whatnot. So and on the research side that I work on, we, we work to develop the tools, techniques, uh, or improve upon those that already exist to, to better help our operational staff get out there and, and take care of some of these problems. Yeah, I think a lot of people may not even be aware USDA is involved in this and research involving native birds, not not just invasive species, but native birds such as vultures and crows are apparently a problem. And then non-native species like feral pigs, Burmese pythons, black spiny-tailed iguanas, monk parakeets, and other invasive species. Yes, that's correct. Okay. Todd Campbell, I spoke to you last. It was a few years ago when the Argentine tegu was just starting to make some real inroads in this area around Tampa Bay. What's happened since then? This species, the Argentine black and white tegu, occurs sort of east of Tampa in Riverview. This is a large lizard, you know, up to five feet long. It's a top predator. So we knew about this problem for probably a decade before we really started working on it. And in 2012, I was able to get some funding to start at least figuring out if we could trap the animals. And I hired a a biologist to do this, a number of biologists, actually. And we caught about 40 animals the first year, and we caught another 40, I think, the second year we worked on them. Catching 40 tegus in the whole Riverview area doesn't seem like a lot, really. It doesn't seem like a terrible problem. Plus, people like tegus. They like to keep them as pets. They do, um, but my experience from not only the tegus but the invasive Nile monitor in Cape Coral is people are frightened and even to the point of terrified of these things sometimes. So both of these species are large enough that they are disconcerting at the very least to somebody who finds one in their yard and usually they want to, you know, have them trapped and removed because their perception is that they're going to eat or harm a pet. In the Riverview area, there's a lot of agriculture. There's a lot of chickens. And so the tegus, they do like bird eggs a lot. And that's actually how we catch them. That's how we trap them. We use the chicken eggs as bait. And so, you know, anyone that has a you know chicken coop or even just has a couple of pet chickens that they like to get eggs from, those animals, and particularly their eggs, and certainly any chicks, would be at extreme risk from these. So for the most part, these animals are not desirable to the people that live in Cape Coral or, or no, Riverview. No, clearly. Yeah. But how has the problem, has it gotten worse? I mean, have you stopped trapping or have you gone on to other things? Do you know what's going on with the tagus? Well, the person that I hired back in 2012 
Tessie Offner. She has um, continued working on this, and there's a couple of hundred animals in in the box now, and that's not a lot. We we're not anywhere close to managing or certainly not anywhere near eradicating this population. So even after all this time, we're still in a information phase. And we've just finished the analysis for uh, the diet of these lizards in Riverview. And we're going to present those findings. And, you know, I'll, I'll just go ahead and say it and reveal it now that because a lot of people already know this, we've found gopher tortoises in their, in their stomachs. Mm. Um, and gopher tortoises are endangered? Well, they're not they're endangered, pro- they're threatened but they are protected. They so are they're, protected. they're listed as special So you don't want to see something eating the gopher tortoises. Yeah. So this, this is one of the things that really concerned us the most was finding a, a listed species in their stomachs. And so... Now, I guess the next strategy would be to try to instigate support and funding for an effort to manage them. Uh, I think it would be really hard. Manage the tegu. Manage the tegu, sorry. I think it would be really hard to eradicate them just because of the, the nature of the landscape. It's a rural area. It's an agricultural area. The density of residences is pretty low, and access can be difficult. And there's also a lot of sort of natural areas interspersed amongst the humanity that's there. So finding a place to trap them is difficult at best. It's a little different in Cape Coral, which is a completely urban residential area, and it's a lot of canals and roads, and it's very easy to navigate, very easy to move around and assess you know, where the lizards are and, and how the traps are working. In but Cape Coral, you've really been trying to catch the Nile monitor lizard, yes. right? Which I think is more dangerous. Yes. In my opinion, it is. We we don't have any gopher tortoises in their stomachs yet that I know of, and we've caught over 550 of them down there. I've been working on this project since 2003. So, But I haven't guess, people been bitten by those? Um, well, I have on camera on National Geographic, I think it was, yeah. <laughs> Did it hurt? Yeah, and it was a little one. But these things aren't really, and neither are the tegus, they're not really dangerous to people. That's not a, something that we really worry about. I know, the, I know the public does, but my experience with not only the tegus, but particularly the monitors, is they're really, really wary and very hard to approach. In fact, I've only got a couple of decent pictures of them in the 16 years I've been working on them. So you're down there walking along a canal, and you hear a noise 50 meters away, and and they're gone, and they splash into the canal, and that's kind of the gist of it. So we have had people um, with them in their garages that perceive the animal as being threatening, but generally, after interviewing that person, it seems pretty obvious that the animal is just trying to get away, and it was basically feeling like it was cornered. So, so what's um, the the threat? I is just I don't think there's a threat to, to people, people really, unless you mess with them. Like somebody trying to get one out of their pool, if mm-hmm. you hand grab one of these things, they're gonna they're gonna try to bite you, and they're they're very good at it. We've had those geckos, like Indonesian geckos, mm-hmm. that also get really the really toke big. Geckos? The toke gecko. Uh-huh. And they kind of growl like yes, a dog. Yes, they do. They say their name. They say toke. Yeah, mm-hmm. they do that really loudly and in the middle of the night. And that's a big animal. Yeah, yeah, they get, I don't know, 16, 18 inches long. They're established on Davis Islands as well. So. They're established in Lakeland, Florida. And oh. I guess that's an invasive species too, I oh, guess. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, John, is part of the problem that the animals come to Florida and they leave their natural predators behind so they really don't have any threats once they get there and they just breed like crazy? 
Yeah, that's uh, that's typically the case. It kind of depends on the size of the species and, and where they are in the food chain. You know, some of the smaller things easily can be taken up by wading birds and, and things like that or, or the, the native predators. But once you start getting into things that can grow really large, like the Burmese python or, or some of these Nile monitors, of which I've had one that was uh, over five feet and a really impressive animal, they do lack their native predators, and they are able to fill uh, environmental niches that other animals are less adapted to doing and then can capitalize on the prey, that, that those predators that they're displacing. Haven't we tried bringing in other animals to eat those animals, invasive animals? Like, how has that worked out? It's been done in a lot of places where, you know, they're trying to get rid of, say, rats, and they bring in mongoose, mm-hmm. uh, and then the mongoose become a problem, and that's sort of a common thing on some of the islands. I'm not aware of any predatory animals that we've brought into the U.S. to take care of invasive species. You know, that's a problem that uh, has happened in Australia uh, mm-hmm. as well as other places, and can create issues for sure. Well, the most significant example or the most horrifying, I should say, example is the cane toad. Both in Australia and in South Florida, they were actually introduced to eat a beetle that they don't eat. They were originally called the the marine toad, and they were sort of renamed the cane toad after a gentleman back in the 30s decided it would be a good idea to put them in the sugarcane fields in Australia and in South Florida to deal with a invasive pest on sugarcane crops. And it just didn't work, and the, and the cane toads exploded in their population size and, and spread out geographically widely, and they occur, you know, all the way up north of Tampa here even. And, uh, of course, they're spreading across Australia and having devastating effects over there to not only native wildlife but people's pets as well because they've got very toxic substance in their parotid glands that when a dog or a cat grabs them or bites them, they will exude this white latex-like substance, which is very toxic, and it can kill a medium, even a large-sized dog. And so you see these things spreading through the landscape, and you can almost tell where they are from from veterinary records. Mm. Um, But it's not as big of a problem to native species here, but in Australia, the native monitor lizards and snakes as well are in great trouble from these things. It's killing them. And there's some Why isn't it killing our monitor lizards? Well, then (laughs) why aren't these two invasives taking care of each other? That's a very good question. I have a number of cane toads in the Nile monitor stomachs from Cape Coral. But in Australia, the native monitor lizards have actually figured out how to deal with the problem by by grabbing the animal, turning it over, gutting it, and then eating the, the legs off of it. And so they've actually evolved to, to adapt to this species and how they eat it. And uh, the snakes in Australia have actually evolved to have different head shape and mouth size so that they are eating smaller cane toads before they get so toxic. I think you're making a good point because once these animals that we call invasive species have been here long enough, if they haven't completely eradicated our native species, don't our native species eventually adapt in those ways that you're talking about to deal with it and live together? Well, they do. And I've, I've got a really great example of it. I've been working for the last 20 years or so on the Cuban brown anole, the tiny little brown lizards that everybody sees everywhere. They're, they're hard to miss. 
We've recently published an article, well, it wasn't recent, it was back in 2014, showing that the green anole, the native anolis lizard, not only moves up higher into the trees to get away from the brown anole, they actually evolved larger toe pads, sticky sort of toe pads, to deal with the more precarious perches up high where they where they are forced to go now. So Amazing. So yeah, critters evolve, it's what happens. And so when you have an invasive species that competes with or eats a native, that native species is going to have to adapt or it may go by the wayside. It's it, There's not a lot of cases of species going extinct on mainlands as a result of invasive species, but there's plenty of examples on islands, especially oceanic islands. The most classic example is 11 out of 13 birds on Guam are extinct because of the brown tree snake that was introduced there back during World War II. Yeah, and that is some efforts that our uh, research group has been working on uh, along with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the U.S. Uh, Geological Survey to tackle that problem and uh, have just recently come up with some better solutions for trying to reduce those populations. Which populations are you talking about, John? The brown tree snakes in Guam. Um, our, our researchers uh, out of our headquarters in Fort Collins, Colorado, have over the years tried uh, different types of traps and things to lure them in or, or toxicants. Uh, and, and the thing that they found that worked the best was uh, acetaminophen tablets like Tylenol placed inside baby mice. And initially they were putting these in tube traps to lure the, the snakes in there. The snake would eat the mouse and then would, would go off and die. But that was a laborious effort to go and hand place those. And so over the years they've developed different techniques and, and have now just they have a helicopter with a delivery system that has all of these little mice with little type streamer parachute sort of things. And the helicopter flies along and just shoots these little guys out of the sky and they fall into the trees and, and get hung up with their little streamer parachutes <laughs> and the snakes go find them and eat the mice. And, and so it's a tool in, in, in the toolbox of techniques that we're working on to, to help some of those species like the Mariana crow and those things come back. What about in Florida? Well, there there are a few success stories as far as what we all like to look at as, as an eradication of a species. And, and I, I say that with trepidation because it's been what we considered a short time, but there was a, a species of bird that escaped from the Miami Zoo during Hurricane Andrew. It was called the sacred ibis. It's from Africa. It looks much like a wood stork, but they're uh, nest predators. And we worked along with a zoo the Everglades Foundation and our operational staff to remove those animals. And as of, I think, about five years now, uh, there is yet to be a, a sighting of sacred ibis. So we consider that on the cusp of an eradication. And there's been some headways in other species. The giant Gambian pouch rat was in large numbers down in Grassy Key in the Florida Keys where they had been reared uh, for the pet trade until they were determined to carry, a, I think it was a monkeypox, that made it less desirable in the pet trade and, and were released. Our organization was hired by the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission to tackle that project. Um, we got the numbers down, running approximately 300 traps a day, to about two individuals that we were able to radio track to a property that we didn't have access to. And in the interim of trying to get access to that property, 
the funding sort of dried up and the project had to be suspended. Oh, um, so and, close. Yeah, so close. Mm-hmm. Um, we, another species that we've worked pretty heavily on is a species of the black spiny tail iguana on the Gasparilla Island, where the residents themselves taxed themselves to pay for the services of removing these animals that were eating up very expensive plants and and causing a nuisance. And uh, to date, there's been over 20,000 of those animals reduced. And and this is a population that started with a couple individuals Mm. um, that had been released that were pets, I believe. Todd, you know something about those. That's a great example of what John was talking about, the spiny-tailed iguanas, because when you start out with a really small population, uh, something that I've been trying to promote for many years is what we call early detection and rapid response, where you take a very small, just very recently established population and you uh, try to nip it in the bud, I like to say. You know, jump on it and try to do exactly what John was talking about with the pouch rat. Great examples. We don't have any examples of eradication of a reptile species from anywhere, really. I was able to eradicate a small population of the uh, red-headed agama from the library in downtown Tampa. (laughs) Um, Uh, What's that? So this African lizard, it's a pretty spectacular redhead lizard. It's black with a redhead, obviously, and and they get, you know, up to two feet long. They're pretty well established down in the Miami area in South Florida, a number of places. But I found out about this small population here in one of the libraries in downtown Tampa. And so... We went over there with what's called noose mats, where you have little nooses that are attached to a piece of plywood and some sticky traps, and we were able to eradicate that population as far as I know. I'm following up on some recent surveys just to make sure it's gone before I publish it. But again, this was a very small population. It was very easy to get rid of. But even by doing that, I haven't gotten rid of the redhead agama from Florida because there's a population in Apollo Beach. And like I said, there's a whole bunch of populations in South Florida. But at least it was a good success story example of, hey, if we go in and we hit these populations hard when it matters, when they're small, you can get the job done. And that's what I tried to do with the Cape Coral monitor lizards, but it turned out to be a much larger problem than we anticipated when we first started. And so when I first started that project, I called it an eradication project, but I quickly changed that name to a management project. Well, that's a great question. John, I want to bring you in on that too. What is the point when we decide that a species is now established, it's here, and we just need to look for other ways to adjust to all living together? Yeah, there's a lot of species, I think, that, that, that fall into that category. You know, the brown anole that, that Todd mentioned in, earlier is... I was really surprised that wasn't a native species. Yeah, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah they're everywhere. And mm-hmm. and when I was growing up in South Florida, it was rare to see a curly-tailed lizard. You'd see them maybe, you know, around the beach. And they're very common now. The green iguana is another, although... The uh, Florida Game and Freshwater Fish Commission has uh, instituted a contract program now to try and eradicate those from the Keys because of some of the more precarious species down there that they could have an impact on. I, I heard that small mammals have all but disappeared from the Everglades because of the Burmese python, that you just don't see the mice and the small mammals that you used to see. There was a study done by um, uh, Dr. McCleary out of the University of Florida uh, Wildlife Department that showed a a large decline of native small mammal species. You know, I'm not going to say that they're not out there because I've, you know, I've seen them, but uh, certainly the 
pythons and some of these other species are, are having a direct impact on those animals. And of course, that then relates to those native animals that rely on those species for their life and, and diets. So we really scratch our heads sometimes, and then we dive in, and, and like Todd said, when we can with a, a early detection and, and rapid response. And that's something that is, is really what we need more of, more resources put in. When these species pop up or the new cool thing to have in the pet trade gets out of its cage, we want to try and figure out where those are and then go in and, and try and remove those. I work along with a group called the Everglades Cooperative Invasive Species Management Area Group. It's a group of all the land managers, state agencies, and those folks that have a stake in the Florida wildlife and the environment. And we meet uh, regularly to help guide on how to deal with the next problem. One uh, thing that came out of uh, the organization, we thought of uh, sort of in hindsight after the 2010 freeze that really was detrimental to the invasive species in South Florida, but also um, a lot of the native species, was that there was a lot of green iguanas that were sort of just frozen or stuck cold, and they were falling out of the trees. And there were some efforts to collect those by the park staff or those people that were around, but not realizing that once they put those animals in the cab of their truck and they warm up, that they, you know, <laughs> come back alive. And so as, as part of the rapid response group that I also work with, we looked back and said, well, what happens, you know, if we get another freeze that we think is going to come up or a big cold snap, maybe we can be more proactive and respond to go and collect as many of those animals as we can while the pickings are easy. Yeah. Um, Todd, you are concerned about the way that some of the issues surrounding invasive species have been handled by the media. Yeah, I, my experience has been in the in the past, and it's probably one of the main reasons why this is my, one of my first interactions with media in, in four years, I guess, is that the presentation of facts becomes sensationalized. And well, like, for instance, the, the monitor problem in Cape Coral, all it takes is one news article that is overblown about the potential danger to human beings, which did happen back in the past, and other media organizations will pick that up, and it becomes almost common knowledge that, yeah, okay, these things are they're dangerous to people, which is, in fact, not the case. But, but it does raise awareness, which it, I would think would help with the funding for your efforts. It, well... I would say that if it did cause heightened public awareness and if it did result in more money being available for f- fighting this problem, I would be all for it. But it, in my experience, I should say it hasn't helped the problem. The sensational articles didn't really do much for the prospects of management or eradication of these species. I think what did a better job of it was to kind of go back to what John was talking about, because I think this is very powerful. These cooperative groups, starting in about 2005, we started talking about early detection and rapid response. And as an offshoot from some of the ideas in those meetings, we have an invasive species hotline where people can call in. And like John said, he's part of a team of experts that can deal with uh, phone calls or you know emails from the public saying, hey, I saw a big monitor lizard in such and such a community. What should we do? And I'm part of that group as well, and so I'll get pictures of lizards that I have to identify, and I'll say, you know, yeah, that looks like a Nile monitor, and we'll try to figure out if it's a new population or if it's just one 
wayward individual that was released or got out of a cage. So I think my take on it is if the news media was able to do a better job at getting the information out that would help early detection and rapid response, I think it would be a lot more valuable than having stories about, you know, pythons eating gators and the real sensationalist stuff that sells copy. And the other thing is these these kind of efforts are more on the back end. Uh, I like to give the doing the dishes analogy. It's a lot harder to, to do your dishes if you let them sit in the sink for a week than if you take care of them as you're, as you're getting them dirty. And so prevention is the best thing we can do about invasive species, keeping them out before they get here. Or if they get here, try to nip them in the bud before the population spreads dramatically. Yeah, and I'd like to just add that, you know, the things that, tend to be sensationalized or get the most media attention are those things that people are inherently uh, afraid of or concerned <laughs> about. Whereas, uh, you know, there's other invasive species like the purple swamp hen that are charismatic and that birders like to see. We, we've just had a recent small group, hopefully only a couple individuals come as far north as Gainesville Sweetwater Park. And it's a concerning thing because the birders want to go out and see them. And, you know, a lot of people aren't in favor of removing animals that are pretty or, or whatnot. You know, my work with the vultures, a lot of people wanted to, to get rid of them because they're ugly, nasty birds that feed on dead road stuff, but they are nature's sanitation workers. So, you know, those things that, that are cool looking, a lot of people like to see, and there's less attention paid to them, but those things that are scary, seemingly, those are the ones that, that get pretty much the more attraction. And so we we need to have some better education about Sure, this is a pretty bird that, you know, is neat to see here. It's from Africa, but it also preys on the native eggs of, of our local birds and, and has negative effects on the native wildlife that you also like to see. So education is a, is a huge component of it. And as Todd earlier mentioned, there's there's a call-in line that if you've, you come across a species that doesn't look native or you're not sure about it, uh, it's a phone number. It's called one eight eight eight. i have got one And there's also a website and uh, an app that you can use that you can submit these reports. But that is the, you know, something that we've done a lot of work to try and educate the public. There's some billboards that have been put up in in strategic areas to help show people that, you know, these things are wanted out of the native environment. And and that's where we hope, you know, the education of what is already there and, and what you can do, but also try not to have these things in the first place if, if you can at all help it or, or possibly regulate what animals can be had as pets. Uh, but that's a, you know, that's a controversial issue as well. That's John Humphrey, a wildlife biologist with the USDA National Wildlife Research Center's Florida Field Station in Gainesville. And I've been speaking with Todd Campbell, Associate Professor of Biology at the University of Tampa. Thank you both so much for your time. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Appreciate it very much. Florida Matters is now available as a podcast. I just wanted to let you know it's another great way to listen whenever it's convenient for you. You can search for it wherever you get your podcasts or go to our website, wusf.org, and click the Listen tab. Florida Matters is a production of WUSF Public Media. The engineer is George Govan. The producer is Stephanie Colombini. I'm Robin Sussingham. Thanks for listening.